the Ortho PAC, hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC, where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. On the next several podcasts, we have Dr. Rawad Hamsey. Dr. Hamsey is an assistant professor of the Department of Anesthesiology at Atrium Health Wake Forest Baptist Hospital and specializes in regional anesthesia and acute pain management. Welcome back, Dr. Hamsey. Thank you. So if we talk about local anesthetics and nerve blocks, and you had talked about some of these that you do for total joints, mm-hmm. um, is there a role other than, you know, like me doing a metacarpal phalangeal block to take someone's nail off, repair their nail bed, mm-hmm. is there use for nerve blocks for other acute or chronic, even chronic pain? Sure. So honestly, this is this is my wheelhouse. This could be a several hour long podcast on its own, uh, talking about nerve blocks. But to be brief, yes, the, the current literature in the realm of total joint arthroplasty certainly supports use of nerve blocks. It does have opioid sparing analgesia, can cause a, a reduced hospital stay, can facilitate earlier hospital discharge, and particularly for total knee replacement, it's recommended by the AOOS the American Orthopedic Society. And so, it, it, you know, multiple studies showing how effective nerve blocks are at reducing opioids and improving patient satisfaction, uh, especially in the realm of total joint arthroplasty. But it's important when you consider nerve blocks, you know, as an anesthesiologist, I consider the strengths of the nerve block, how it affects the analgesia that it's causing. So where you do the nerve block matters entirely. For example, total shoulder patients coming in for total shoulder arthroplasty, they're going to be in a sling. They're not going to be expected to be, you know, active range of motion aggressively as we are expecting our total knee or total hip patients. You know, we're, we're walking them down the hall post-op day zero. For total shoulder patients, it seems a little more acceptable to have more motor blocks. So we ubiquitously place interscaling catheters, so continuous nerve block, send them home on an infusion of, of local anesthetic through that. And, and they have four days of analgesia, essentially, where they have little to no pain. In the realm of, of lower extremities, it's a little bit more challenging because we want those patients strong. So it's kind of been the theme and the pattern in anesthesia to perform nerve blocks, essentially, more distally away from the motor effects. So we used to do femoral catheters for total knees. Now we're doing adductor canal catheters, which are a little further down the leg after the, the quad muscle branches have already left the femoral nerve. So a little bit less analgesia, but full strength is the goal there. The introduction of the IPAC block, for example, to get the posterior capsule uh, of the knee especially has been studied in the past five, six years as uh, a useful adjunct to, to the adductor canal block in a way that doesn't affect the strength of the sciatic nerve. So no foot drop, for example. And so that's that's been the theme is approaching nerve blocks that don't cause motor impairment, but still cause analgesia. For opioid tolerant patients, you know, other scenarios, for example, after a fall or after injuries, you know, coming into the ED, we get consulted not infrequently because it's challenging to, to manage their pain if they're, they've been on opioids for all the reasons we mentioned earlier. And so we frequently get consults for nerve blocks, uh, nerve catheters, even outside of the perioperative realm where we can help a patient with analgesia um, and, and cause them to have a better hospital experience, better discharge experience, and, and reduce the amount of opioids they need to be comfortable. You mentioned chronic pain as well. Um, there's a lot of 
chronic pain clinics that are performing nerve ablations. And so they'll, they'll often do a nerve block as a test and then ablate the nerve if the patients saw analgesia that was significant to them. So probably most most widely known is the genicular nerve blocks in the knee. Sometimes patients will be referred to a chronic pain clinic for consideration of genicular nerve blocks from the ortho clinic. And either that's usually that's in, in hopes to avoid uh, total joint arthroplasty at a younger age to hopefully get them a longer l- longevity when they do need the knee replacement or, or hip replacement. And sometimes that's after a, a knee replacement was successful, but they have continued pain trying to treat that pain through nerve ablations. And it just involves essentially the same idea, trying to block nerves that are primarily sensory, not causing any motor weakness by ablating those nerves. So genicular nerves in the knee, there have been some articular nerves from the femoral and obturator in the hip. And I'll talk about that in a second. Um, The shoulder, there's three nerves that you can ablate in the shoulder for chronic shoulder pain. And, And it seems like there's increasing uptake of these nerve ablations in the chronic pain clinic for treatment of the, the symptoms in a way that doesn't involve medications taken by mouth. And so uh, one more thing, just because I mentioned, I would talk about the, the motor sparing effect of some of these nerve blocks. We are looking at a new block for hip surgery patients um, called the PENG block, the pericapsular nerve group block whereby we're not affecting any of the strength of the femoral obturator nerve, just those articular fibers where we're causing hip capsule analgesia without causing any motor weakness. So that's a common one we're using now in in, uh, total hip patients. And then one last thing on the topic, um, just because when we mentioned regional anesthesia, I also like to mention spinal anesthesia is, is among there. It's been shown, of course, as an anesthetic to reduce the blood loss of these surgeries, total joint arthroplasty, it reduces the cardiac risk, the pulmonary risk of putting patients to sleep under general. And it does have actually increased recovery, uh, more rapid recovery, because we're not essentially turning the patient's brain off with general anesthesia. So whenever I talk about blocks, I also consider, you know, the anesthetic we can provide for these patients too matters a lot. Um, There's lower anesthetic complications when the patients get spinal anesthetics for these joint replacement surgeries. It's great to know that there are so many options available to try to help manage this. You had also mentioned, and we should talk about this a little, I think, adjunct treatments for pain management, things like physical therapy, biofeedback, massage therapy. Mm -hmm. Do you refer patients for these types of interventions in your clinical practice? Uh, Unfortunately, I, I don't personally incorporate these or get the chance to, the time to incorporate a lot of these alternative therapies in the patients that I see uh, perioperatively or as an acute pain physician, but a lot of my chronic pain colleagues do. In fact, our, our chronic pain clinic now has a pain psychologist who we frequently refer patients to for some of these therapies, for a lot of the biofeedback, a lot of the mindfulness exercises that can be helpful in mediating the central component of pain and the the affective component of pain, how the patients cope with their pain, which has everything to do with their their experience. We did a few years back try to unsuccessfully incorporate a a mindfulness course on CD for patients coming in for total joint arthroplasty. A lot of the barriers there were just in the having the technology to play the CD and and some of the implementation problems create a barrier there. But we have expressed interest. We, we'd like to incorporate more of these alternative therapies as part of our treatment, just because if you can have a non-pharmacologic treatment, 
you're saving the patient the risk factors and oftentimes still improving their pain, which is, which is everything. I will say in the perioperative period, we continue to be a little bit resource limited. We have very high throughput of these patients, but you know, in the future, I do want to incorporate more of those therapies, maybe get a few more staff members who can you know, come in after us and, and have a little bit more time to spend with the patients going through mindfulness at the least, biofeedback and alternative therapies. I do strongly recommend, you know, for orthopedic practices with a clinic, you know, it, it makes sense to me to create a repertoire of resources, of handouts, of pamphlets, of, of website links with these modalities. I mean, you guys are the patient's first go-to. They're, they're looking to you to help them with their pain. And I think they will take any advice that you give them to heart for the most part. So if you send them home with a pamphlet on mindfulness, for example, or meditation, I think a lot of them would actually consider it. Um, at least what I see in the perioperative period is patients are very open-minded for the most part, especially if they've been in pain for a long time. I do really recommend orthopedic practices to incorporate that into their, at least in their clinic in some way, whether they have a, a staff member who's well-versed in those, or whether it's just a simple resource pamphlet that you can send patients home with to, to do some reading on their own. I think it's a great idea. I think it's a great idea as well. I'm not sure if we have that. I know we have the resource, but I don't know if we have that like a pamphlet or a CD, but yeah. I need to check on that for my, my own practice. Okay. So last topic, and I really appreciate your time. We've covered a, a lot of ground for pre and post-operative total joint arthroplasty. Could you just give us a, you know, an overview of how you will manage it? I know it's very patient specific and, you know, depending on what their comorbidities are. But I was just hoping you might go over some of that for us. Sure, absolutely. Our institution focuses on multimodal analgesia, obviously. Um, it focuses on uh, nerve blocks for pain, a spinal anesthetic for all patients. And then luckily, we have the resources to have continued follow-up, at least while they're in-house, uh, for adjustment of the, the regimen. So I'm a, I'm a member of the pain team. I'm also a member of the perioperative surgical home and get to see the patients before uh, immediate post-op and then post-op day one off, oftentimes. We tend to focus on starting even before the surgery. So in the pre-op bay, before we do analgesic nerve blocks, we'll typically, like I said, give acetaminophen um, 1,000 milligrams, or if they're under 66 kilos, we'll round down to 15 per kilo, whatever the closest dose to that is. Celebrex, 400 milligrams if they haven't been on any NSAIDs um, as a loading dose, and then 200 twice a day after that. Or if they have a salt allergy, we'll do meloxicam, 15. We include methacarbamol, um, either 500 or 1,000 milligrams for total hips for most patients, um, 500 if they're elderly, and then 1,000 if they're a little bit younger, like under 65. And then we do nerve blocks. For the knees, we're doing adductor canal and IPAC uh, single injection blocks. With a long-lasting local, we put uh, bupivacaine with several adjuncts. And we've actually seen sensory block for up to 30 to 40 hours with those adjuncts. Um, so we have actually abandoned the use of catheters, at least at our institution, for total knees, especially given they're usually out of the, out of the hospital in one day. For total hips, I mentioned we're doing lumbar plexus blocks, but we're also commonly switching to a PANG block and actually have an RCT that I'm heading now that we're, we're looking at the PANG block compared to the lumbar plexus block directly head to head. A lot of institutions have already made that switch, but we just want to show as a superiority trial that 
it at least is as good as the lumbar plexus block for, for pain. Um, and because it's motor sparing, if it does show improved pain scores and reduced opioids, we're probably going to uh, jump to the pain block preferentially and make it last longer like we have with the, the total knee blocks, the adductor canal and pack blocks. We do progress from there with a spinal anesthetic. We do that in the pre-op holding, and we usually use intermediate to shorter acting spinal, like three hours, somewhere around there, because it takes the surgeons about an hour or two to get the joint replacement done. And then intra-op realm, we're giving other IV meds in addition to the propofol for sedation. We'll give small boluses of ketamine to augment analgesia, and then small boluses, boluses of dexmedetomidine, or Presidex. Um, if they have chronic pain, for example, if they're not elderly, because um, that can be quite sedating too. I did mention dexamethasone, so 0.1 milligrams per kilo up to 10 milligrams, which is a pretty big dose up front during surgery. And that's kind of the, the intra-op realm. And then post-op, we're continuing the multimodals with the Tylenol and the Celecoxib and the muscle relaxant if they were, uh, for example, a total hip patient or had uh, muscle spasms with their knee pain prior to the surgery. And then lastly, kind of the icing on the cake is just opioids as needed. It's interesting. We, we usually try and separate out the Tylenol from the opioids. So we don't generally use combination drugs here like Percocet or uh, Norco, um, trying to make sure they're getting the maximum benefit of the acetaminophen, although that may be changing um, in, in the next few years here. We do schedule those multimodals for now and, and give them the, ch the chance to ask for oxycodone typically or um, hydromorphone PO as needed. And they typically do better um, with this multimodal regimen. That's more or less our regimen. We, we do tailor it. Like I said, we'll sometimes add pregabalin for patients with neuropathic pain or those on gabapentinoids at home. Um, it seems to be effective, but that's generally our, our pathway for them. Perfect. It's always great to hear how other folks do it. So Dr. Mm -hmm. Hamsey, we've covered a, a lot of information. What important points should we recap for our listeners? So I think a few major things I always try to emphasize, and one of them is, is just have a toolkit of multimodal options for your patients that you and your team feel strongly about, feel comfortable with, and just learn more about these medications. And the more you use them, the more secondhand this will become. Try to know their side effects, know their contraindications, and, and what their strengths are. And over time, you just build, I'm sure you guys already have your own kind of algorithm for how you approach pain and how you escalate regimens. But trying as much as possible to incorporate those multimodal medications um, into there so, so that you can defer or even maybe eliminate opioids until they're absolutely needed. Obviously, I think it's important to, to drive home that it's, it's really a tailored approach to each patient. You have to consider their comorbidities, but also their preferences and their, their different preferences for treatment options. Something we didn't really address is topical agents, but a lot of patients, um, for example, will prefer topical to oral NSAIDs or, or what have you. So it's, it's a conversation that's back and forth, at least with the patient, to determine what the best multimodal regimen is to them. But telling them of the importance of multimodals, I think, is educating them is an important factor in there, too. And then lastly, I think, um, you know, reach out to your colleagues in anesthesia. Um, we always are happy to help, if, whether it's just questions or if you need help implementing 
an algorithm, including multimodals, um, at least at our institution, we, we sometimes get asked um, for help with difficult scenarios or creating pathways for patients. And we're always working on enhancing recovery after surgery. So we're, we're always happy to help. I know anesthesiologists at your institution would love to get involved too in, in treatment of pain. So especially if you have patients in, in specific scenarios like buprenorphine, like we talked about, or large doses of chronic opioids, we do frequently change the game plan a little bit to make sure their experience is a little better um, because they, they often have higher needs. So um, we're always happy to help. And then um, one final thing, just never stop learning. I, I think I learn something every week I'm on. So it's always uh, evolving. Okay, that's great information. Dr. Hamzik, thank you for being on today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Sam. Thanks for having me. Please follow the Physician Assistance in Orthopedic Surgery on social media. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Please subscribe to our podcast. If this has been helpful, please take a moment to leave a review. I'm excited to tell our audience that Denver registration is now open for our 22nd annual meeting. This is our annual fall meeting and will be August 22nd through the 26th at the Sheridan Denver Downtown Hotel. Come and join us for some CME and get away for a little while in the Mile High City. Stop by the desk and say hello. I look forward to seeing you there.